1: Right. Hurry, 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 step right up, folks.
2: Here's the answer to your problems, Dr. Utopia's sensational new discovery, ISM. ISM will cure any ailment of the body. Do you recognize
0: that voice, Hannah?
2: The voice of Dr. Utopia? No, Nick, I don't recognize
0: it. It's Frank Nelson. Who? Wait, let me try this. Do you recognize this? Yes! Oh, that guy! That guy! The yes guy. I uh, know. Uh, no. uh, yeah. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm
2: Hannah McCarthy.
0: And today we are tackling three isms. This is a trio that sees a lot of use and misuse in the media and on social media. We will never let socialism destroy American health care.
3: According to a new survey, 70% of American millennials say they'll likely vote socialist and one in three of them view communism favorably. The leader of the American military compared the president of the
0: United States to Hitlerian fascism. We are talking socialism, communism, and fascism. Words that you or I, Hannah, or even you, gentle listener, might misuse with the best of intentions.
2: Okay, Nick. Each of those words on their own are college courses. You're
0: not wrong, Hannah. So this is going to be as light of a touch as I can manage.
2: Hang on, before you start, what was that thing you played with the guy peddling isms?
0: Oh, yeah, that is as good a place to start as any. It is from a cartoon called Make Mine Freedom. It was a cartoon funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation in the 1940s. It is a jocular short where we learn how great the, quote, American way of business is. Uh, The scene I played for you there had the shady Dr. Utopia uh, peddling them bottles of isms. And these Americans see what life is like once they get a taste. I'll take
1: this case to the Supreme Court. The state is the Supreme Court. Our decision is as follows. No more private property. No more you.
2: Wait, what is the ism cocktail? Communism? Socialism?
0: Interestingly, Hannah, it is not named or specified once in the entire movie, but this is clearly an anti-communist piece. But whatever the ism is we're talking about today, all isms at their core are ideologies. So ideologies are
3: frameworks. They're ways of organizing the way we
0: think and engage uh, society and, and political power structures. This is Patrick McGovern, professor of political science at Buffalo State University, and he gets a very special shout out. Why is that? Patrick is responsible for teaching political theory to the person we have had on our show more than any other.
2: You mean Dan Casino from Fairleigh Dickinson University?
0: I do indeed.
2: Aw, thanks Patrick.
0: Thank you, Patrick. But back to the episode. Patrick told me why we have ideologies, what they do in the first place. They provide us with, if you think about the human brain
3: as having, you know, the the the, the reptile brain that says run like hell, uh, and then the brain that sits on top of that says, well, let's think about this. Ideologies are in the run like hell thing. They're 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 there to help us simplify, filter, and deal with an onslaught of data that we that we get hit with coming out of our political realm, coming out of the social world we engage in. So these are things that help us understand what's coming at us and if you look at anybody who's defining this is it's they're deeply within us they are part of who and what we are someone like Karl Marx would say about ideologies we don't know their ideology we simply think one other people think this way think the same way we do and if they don't they're bad it's that easy um black and white good over here or bad over there so ideologies help us organize those things
2: Okay, so ideologies are the labels we adhere to that help guide lots of other choices we make.
0: Yeah, and labels that we attach to other people that we may disagree with. And all three of the isms we're talking about today were created in direct contrast to another ism. If we're going to talk about friends and enemies, all of those were organized
3: primarily against liberalism. (laughs)
2: liberalism. Now, not liberal as in left wing, but liberal as in the old school definition, the freedom of the individual is the most important thing.
3: Absolutely. We in the United States call it libertarianism. And that that's a whole nother show. Uh, But the liberalism that we get from someone like the the English um, political thinker John Locke writing in the late 1600s, promotes the idea of, of the individual as coming prior to society, that the individual societies are made up of atomized individuals. Society is just a collection of individuals. So when you organize government, government has to be restricted from impinging upon the individual pursuing their own interest.
0: Last thing on ideologies, generally before I get into any one of these in particular, Patrick posits that the notion of the United States having one is relatively new.
3: One of the things I think my my students and most people just don't understand, and it, that's it's okay, but we're just taught this way, is that the nation state, as we organize we're organized politically, internationally, and you know, the way we look at the world today, we are members were citizens of the united states the united states that's something we th- we only come to recognize after the civil war that's what the civil war was about prior to it we call it
0: these united states but after the civil war we really start to run with this idea of the u.s as a nation-state because it is a lot more effective to get soldiers to join and fight for a country and what it stands for than for your town or your state to do the same. So what happens is we
3: start seeing the development nation states getting in cahoots with economies, organizing society in such a way as to make them better at projecting their power into the rest of the world, particularly Europeans. The question becomes, what's, what's the best way of doing that? And how do you avoid some of the problems that come with it? And one of the problems that comes with it, and this is where socialists and Marxists kick in, is that, hey, when you look at that economy that you think is fueling everything, one, you're making some people super rich, and you're destroying the lives of other people.
2: Okay, we're getting to how the economy works here. Making the wealthy wealthier and hurting the non-wealthy at the same time. Are we straying into our first ism?
0: We are indeed, Hannah. Socialism.
1: I define socialism as a political movement that seeks to equalize political, social, and economic power within capitalist society.
0: This is Susan Kang, professor of political science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice.
1: I'm a member of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America, and also, for fun, I also co-host a podcast called Left on Red.
2: Left on Red is a very funny name for a podcast about socialism.
1: Well,
0: as I am a thousand-year-old vampire, I don't really get the joke, Hannah, but I sort of do. Uh, I asked Susan, though, what the goal of socialism is.
1: What are socialists trying to do? To me, the fight for socialism in, like, you know, our contemporary context would be promoting rights for workers, social and economic rights for regular people, whether it be like guaranteeing housing, health care, education, things like a clean environment, Ch- did I say childcare, uh, and lots of things that we, in our current society, think of as things you pay for, right? Because uh, I'm also a scholar of human rights. So uh, human rights are not just the idea that you have a right not to be discriminated against, which is, of course, also fundamental to socialism, in my mind, but also that You don't have to have value in a capitalist market economy to be able to have your basic needs met. Um, And so that's like a really minimalist view of uh, socialism.
2: Okay, so Susan identifies as a socialist. She does. Now, when I think of extreme socialism, I think of things like a system where nobody owns property and everything is distributed equally.
1: Is that what she's advocating for?
0: Absolutely not. There are dozens of different kinds of socialism.
1: My own family, for example, my grandmother, uh, lived in what is now North Korea. They lost land. There was a lot of repression. You know, there was starvation, like, you know, under Stalin, for example. There was an attempt to create a new society through force. And, like, no one that I know who calls himself a socialist wants to do something like that. Like, we know that really radical, top-down, state-mandated social economic reforms... They don't work, right? What we need is to build broad consensus among people who think, yeah, this is what we want.
3: One of the things I like to point out to people that if you, you know, you don't like socialism, all right, then don't read Dickens. That anger that you see in Charles Dickens against the factory owners. Marx is writing the same thing. Just they're doing it different ways, but it's the same anger. And again, this is particularly this time, the, the rise of um, the textile mill, the rise of automation. We're not quite there yet, but it's you, know, you can see it beginning to happen. Child labor, the reason you have kids working these looms is their little hands work faster and can get into the machinery. Oh, the kid's hand is ripped off. Yep, too bad. Go beg. There's no There's no social net. So you had people who were making the argument that Okay, we've got this rise of the nation state. Maybe we can use it to provide a baseline of protection against the citizens that you're asking to commit to the nation state.
0: Even though I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who referred to the U.S. as a socialist country, we do have an awful lot of socialist policies, places where the government steps in to help people out.
2: Okay, off the top of my head, I'm thinking uh, like food assistance programs. Unemployment insurance, Medicare, Social Security. The mail. The mail.
1: The U.S. mail, like, they get stuff there, right? And we take it for granted. But it's really nice. What if I offered you 25, uh, I don't know, 50 odd cents to deliver this thing to my friend in California? That would never work. There's no market for that.
0: And there's one big, big one that I never before thought of as socialist. Just get on Google and type
3: in biggest discretionary spending U.S. government. And what do you get? That is the spending outside of debt maintenance and Social Security that are mandated. You have to pay into that. What's the next thing? Hey, it's defense. You and I are not going out and buying a B-2 bomber. We can't. We cannot, you know, France cannot buy a B-1 bomber from us. There's one group that's purchasing That's that's the United States military. That's socialist, that's government buying these things for us.
1: Capitalists have to work really, really hard to go against that existing consensus to tell them that this is going to be not in your favor. Having these kinds of basic rights are going to mean that you, hard hardworking American are going to get cheated when, in actuality, the cheating is already there.
0: Again, a reminder here, Susan identifies as a socialist. We're sharing her political viewpoint here. But I have to add, it's not an uncommon one.
1: It's the wealthy who are hoarding their wealth, hiding it offshore, refusing to pay their share of taxes, um, doing things like kicking people off Medicaid, like hundreds of thousands of people are now being kicked off Medicaid, other social programs, which in no way will benefit anyone not even like, you know, employers. Uh, So we see that this is like an ideological war that has to constantly be fought. Because otherwise, if we were allowed to present our ideas, then we would win um, because they're popular ideas.
2: Okay, I'd like to move on to a more specific form of socialism, one that the US has certainly been at odds with over the years, communism.
0: Ah, yes, communism. We're going to get to that, as well as fascism, right after the break.
2: And Nick, speaking of free things for the common good...
0: Oh, I see where this is going.
2: Civics 101 is and always will be, as long as I draw breath, free. But it relies on listener support. If you have the means, donate what you like at our website, civics101podcast.org. Hey there,
0: everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch.
2: That is the largest employer in the world.
0: And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job.
2: But if you run a business and you're not the federal government... The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed.
0: 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites.
2: 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets.
0: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com civics.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast.
0: Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed.
2: We're back. We're doing a gentle touch on a bunch of isms today. And Nick, we were about to dive into the system of government that provides from each according to their ability to each according to their need.
0: Top marks to you, Hannah. Let's do a minute on communism.
1: Now the world begins to learn the truth about communism. Family ties are discouraged. The state is supreme. Religion is the opiate of the people.
0: The basic definition of communism is a system based on the ideals presented by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels' work, The Communist Manifesto. And the big thing you got to know about it is that it removes all class.
2: Like there's no more upper class, no more working class, no more so-called lower class, etc.
0: Right. And everyone owns everything together, leading to the eventual removal due to irrelevance of private property, of money, and ultimately the state itself. But... Like we said with socialism, communism is also not so cut and dried. When you talk
3: about the communism that comes out of after Marxism, you get
0: Leninism, you get Maoism, you get Trotskyism, just to name a few. Again, this is Patrick McGovern, professor of political science at Buffalo State University. They all have different
3: views. For example, Lenin had no problem with the state. The revolution was people seizing the state, using the state to organize workers, and then eventually the state goes away. But as you can see with Stalin, Stalin had no problem with keeping the state right in place. And this is one of the breaks between Stalin and Trotsky. That's, ah, no, 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 that's not, we, we don't want the state. We can see what the problems with the state is. This, It's authoritarian.
0: And classic Marxists are not authoritarian. To my understanding, Hannah, no country has yet successfully had a Marxist-style government. Again, here's Susan Kang, professor of political science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice.
1: In my mind, communism is what various states, like various countries of the world, participated in before the end of the Cold War, in which there was an attempt to use a powerful state to radically transform society to fit socialist ideas. Sometimes people use the term actually existing socialism, or state socialism to describe this, but we could think of this as like East Germany, Soviet Union, like the Eastern Bloc, maybe Vietnam, North Korea, and oh, China, obviously. And some people, in some places, it was very Stalinist um, with like a really powerful totalitarian state. Um, but the general idea was that there was an ideology of socialism that justified the whole project, but the practices were not necessarily ones that someone like myself would ever endorse or say we're good right so for example stalin thought that most farming in soviet union was done through privatized means and he was like nah let's do something called collective farming and um if you don't fall in line i'm gonna send you to the gulag um and so he it was very top down not a lot of appreciation for local knowledge
0: and a lot of people protested and were indeed kicked out or sent to the gulags, those were forced labor camps where over 18 million people were imprisoned. And this, of course, had horrible repercussions.
1: And so his great Soviet collectivization of agriculture led to some of the most devastating famines in Russian history, uh, in which like millions of people died. So that's not something that uh, socialists would endorse, at least not contemporary socialists
3: Marx wouldn't look at China, Marx wouldn't look at uh, the Soviet experiment or Vietnam or Cuba and say, Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I had in mind. No, those people are <laughs> those people are miserable. That's not what he had in mind. He had in mind a radical democracy where we all own the means of production. All
2: right, in the US we have historical moments like the Red Scare, the Cold War. These are things that supported the idea that America as a nation state does not espouse a communist ideology. That it is, in fact, anti-communist. But there was a communist party in the U.S., wasn't there?
0: There was. And I got to bring this up because it happened just a few blocks from where I live. A historic marker dedicated to the birthplace of a member of that party has very recently been removed. I am dead set against this. And I think it's an embarrassment that we have a program that allows us to put communists on historical markers and then say, oh, that's part of our history. It's not part of my history.
3: Certainly in the 1930s in the United States, there were a lot of people who were you know, members of the Communist Party, f- flirting with the, the Communist Party. And the fear was that they were just agents of the Soviet Union. And certainly the Soviet Union was trying to make them agents. There's the, that, That's clear. Um, but once a lot of people
0: caught wind that that was going on, They hightailed it out of there. So a historic marker dedicated to the birthplace of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was removed, not during the Cold War, not during the Red Scare, but a few weeks ago. And New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu signed off on the removal. Flynn was a leader in the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World Labor Union, as well as a founding member of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. And yes, she was indeed a leading member of the Communist Party USA. She went to prison for that. Uh, She was accused of advocating the violent overthrow of the government and she defended herself at the trial saying, quote, never have I, and not now do I, intend to advocate the overthrow of the government by force and violence, nor do I intend to bring about such an overthrow. She died during a visit to Russia in the 1960s, but as per her wishes, her remains were shipped to be buried in Chicago. Right next to Emma Goldman.
3: Not all people who claim Marxist roots, of course, are not endorsing what Stalin was up to. And, and look how many people left Marxists, left the Soviet Union because that's what he was up to. They knew what he was doing and they got the, They got out of there.
2: OK, Nick, last ism here. Fascism. It's a little strange to include it in this list because communism and socialism share a lot of principles, uh, but fascism does not share those same principles.
0: I agree. They do not share principles. I picked these three specifically because of their prevalence in social media. And we've been in the historic vein for a while, Hannah, but I have to let our listeners know that in this last part, we're going to touch on today's political climate and our guests' view of it. And we don't do that too often on the show. Okay? Okay. Okay. First, I'm going to start with a contrasting piece of propaganda to make mine freedom. Here's a clip from another film called Don't Be a Sucker. It's an anti-fascism movie produced by the U.S. Department of War in 1947.
1: I'm speaking to you as an American American. And I tell you, friends, we'll never be able
2: to call this country our own until it's a country without. Without Negroes. Without alien foreigners. Without Catholics.
1: Without Freemasons. You know these What's wrong with the Masons? I'm a Mason. Hey, that fellow's talking about me. And that makes a difference, doesn't it?
2: Wait, the protagonist is going along with fascist ideas until he hears they're against Freemasons?
0: Yeah. Not really a persecuted group today, Hannah, or ever. In
3: in getting ready for this podcast, I was reading up on all of this and where people are worried about the ism of Marxism slash communism, fascism had a much bigger impact on the world. More countries are willing to engage in fascist tendencies, authoritarian, totalitarian tendencies than you know a successful communist revolution.
2: Do you have like a Webster's definition of fascism?
0: Yeah, this one's harder to define. There's no, like, fascist manifesto, and it's not a term anybody really uses to describe themselves. But Patrick gave me a good breakdown.
3: Okay, um, I'm going to say it's an authoritarian nationalist ideology that's characterized by strong central government, a dictatorial leader, a strict control of the economy. It suppresses political dissent. It's aggressive. It's militaristic. And it has a clear sense of an enemy who has caused a crisis in the nation. And the, the only, there's only one person that can solve that crisis and everybody has to get on board with, with the leader. Whether you call it Il, Il Duce, you call him the Fuhrer, You call him the man. um, And again, it's almost always a male figure. It's very, very gendered in that regard.
2: Getting on board with the leader is an idea that has been around since we have had leaders. But when does that word, fascism, arise as an ideology?
3: Fascism came out of Italy in the 1920s um, under Benito Mussolini. Um, who was trying to organize, again, like everybody else, he's looking around saying, you know, Italy kind of didn't do so well in World War I. So Benito Mussolini comes along and says, I'm going to make you the, you know, I'm going to make you a reincarnation of the Roman Empire. We're going to be important again.
2: That is a pretty bold claim. How does he go about doing that?
0: Well, first, by concentrating on massive weapons production and equally massive industrial production, and also framing this Italy-first ideology. We are the best.
3: The, the other thing is that fascism ties in with the rise of national communication systems. It's film, radio, um, propaganda. During World War I, nation states figured out how to get millions of people into the trenches and be willing to walk into a meat grinder and not give a second thought
0: about it. Fascists do this extremely well. And unlike our other isms, fascism allows people to get very, very wealthy. Fascism is all about the nation state. It does
3: not challenge private property. That's one of the things where it's going to come after Marxism and say, no, we're going to let the, the private, especially large capital holders, we're going to let them be, we're going to let them get rich. So long as they're supporting our regime's aim, and that is to make Italy great again.
0: And... As we all know, Mussolini wasn't the last fascist.
2: Right. Many leaders since have used the idea of the nation above the individual or race above the individual to gain power.
0: Yeah, like Adolf Hitler. And while Hitler and Mussolini are dead and gone, and the fascist ideologies of Italy and Germany that led to World War II are no longer tied to those nation states, fascism itself is not gone from the earth. One of the things we
3: tend to forget is that with the end of World War II, elements that bring about fascism did, were not defeated. They did not go away. Um, so that's that's always a threat. One of the you know fascism's biggest targets is democracy. They don't want our vote. They want our participation, but they don't want our vote because that, that they don't want an in sense of individuality. It's be a good soldier, strap on, you know, this
0: national burden and, and take up arms. And Patrick says that if we're looking at fascism today, in America, the enemy isn't necessarily another nation. It may not be taking up arms and, you know, go, go off to Afghanistan and fight, but
3: take up arms against the people who are driving our country apart. But but you certainly opened up a can of worms. It's like, well, what what fascist elements do we see in the United States? Um you know, if I come out and say Trump, you're going to get a boatload of, you know, you're 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 going to be overwhelmed. Uh, but certainly that tendency that I am the answer. We are in crisis. I am the answer. God, guns, and Coca Cola, or you know, don't don't challenge um, industry unless it's Disney and they're making us woke or something. But the people who get on board with them, the people who are on board with them are clearly good and everybody else is bad. That certainly shows, you know, at, at least a tendency towards authoritarianism.
2: Patrick said the ideology of fascism didn't end after the war. But does that mean we're stuck with it?
0: Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I don't want to end an episode on a shrug, but this is truly something that comes and goes.
3: This has been a long slog, I would argue, since World War II. Um, And, you know, it it came in waves. And, you know, American politics is always on this pendulum, and we happen to be swinging towards a not-so-discursive mode right now. Um, My hope, and... History tells us we'll swing back, but what's going to take us to swing back? Maybe it was January 6th that we say, oh, okay, we've gone we've gone far enough.
0: Well, that's our triumvirate of isms for today. I'm personally off to go read some Marx, Engels, Hegel, Locke, and Machiavelli. See you soon! This episode was made by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Our staff includes producer Jackie Fulton, senior producer Christina Phillips, and executive producer Rebecca Lavoie. Music in this episode by some of the rootinest, tootinest tune makers out there. Blue Dot Sessions, Daniel Birch, Jesse Gallagher, Francis Wells, Dream, Jules Gaia, Howard Harper Barnes, Matt Large, Huma Huma, Scott Gratton, Simon Matthewson, Young Karts, and the guy who makes the music available to all according to their needs, Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Yeah!